you know, it's okay, I think, to make lateral moves or moves down if it's it's helping you get on that next S curve, right? Mm-hmm. This, this curve, it's going to keep going up for me, and I know that, and that's why I made that decision. And welcome back to the Inside Study Abroad podcast. This is episode number 41. And this show is all about helping you launch and level up your career in international education and meaningful travel. And today we have a very special episode. We haven't done this before. We realized when we were going through some ideas for future episodes, but Sam has never been interviewed on the podcast. So today, very special treat. I'm interviewing the lovely Sam Cooper about her career trajectory in international education and how she got here and all the things. So how are you doing, Sam? I'm great. Thanks for having me. (laughs) (laughs) It's so funny. Like once we hit record, we're both like, hi, (laughs) but normally we're like, whatever. So let's start off. Like I do every interview and tell us your international education story. Sure. So I think my story really starts how I imagine lots of people's stories start with actually studying abroad. So I went to UC Santa Barbara, um, where the gauchos, I don't know, I said that I was never into sports there, but, um, and we had, I had the opportunity to do the education abroad program. So I did a year in France during my junior year. Um, So at the time, a very traditional study abroad program. And whilst I was studying there, I had a program coordinator um, who was French and amazing. And I just fell in love with her and I wanted to be her, you know, how that happens when you study abroad and you see someone in that culture and you're then aspire to be them. Well, I just fell in love with this cute, wonderful, amazing French lady. um, And I just wanted to be her. I loved how helpful she was. And so when I went back to campus the year after for my senior year, I applied to be a peer advisor in the study abroad office. And that's really how I started um, and haven't really looked back since. So I started as a peer advisor. I did that my senior year. And I'm very lucky to be a dual citizen with the UK. I'm really sorry. I'm married now too, so I can't marry you to give you this <laughs> dual citizenship. Um, I know. And- every time I'm like, does Alan have a brother? <laughs> Uh, he does, but he's, he's partnered up. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It's fine. It's fine. Um, and so after my senior year, I moved to London without a job. Um, and it was a week after 9-11, which is crazy. Uh, and I just started job hunting and I ended up getting a job at Chelsea College of Art and Design, uh, working as an international registrar. So working with the international incoming students that came to do really foundation years or their, their first year at the, at the university. Um, okay, and wait, that's kind of how it started. Pause, pause, pause. Okay, sorry. I didn't know if you were going to keep going. And like, I was like, no, we need to go back. I have questions. So sure. for you, even though you, I know you were a dual, you are and have always been a dual citizen, but what, what lit your spark for even wanting to study abroad in the first place? Where did that inspiration come from? Did yeah. you travel a lot growing up? Um, I was always obsessed with it. And I think because my dad's British and my mom's American, we would travel to England, for example. Um, but I think it really started with uh, my dad would took my brother and I both when we turned 13 to Paris, which is really romantic. Isn't that it? is that so sweet. sweet. I know. <laughs> so uh, when it was my turn, uh, we went to Paris and spent 
I can't even remember how many days, but then traveled to, to the UK to visit our family there. Uh, and I remember my dad trying to teach me certain French phrases to get by and being terrified that I wouldn't be able to say them. I think one of them he taught me was um, jokingly, but he did teach it to me was how to tell the cab driver, my, you know, my father's drunk, take me to the hotel. Oh, <laughs> David Cooper, Cooper for you. <laughs> um, and I think from there, I just, we went and I practiced a little bit of French, you know, asking people for to buy stamps. I remember that was a phrase and, and where the toilets were. And I just thought, I really want to learn this language. This is amazing. So that was the, that was the nugget. That was, yeah, the that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. And so then you studied French in college. Um, I did. How, how, how's your French these days? So it's been about 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's okay. Um, I love languages. And I'm obsessed with them, but it doesn't mean I'm great at them. Uh, I wish I kept it up. If when I go back, I can speak a little bit and it becomes more comfortable. Uh, but I did also then learn Spanish. So right now, my Spanish is probably a little bit better than my French. And when I go back to when I visit Spain or Latin America, that comes back a lot quicker. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's just a jumble there. Yeah, uh, but I didn't make languages my lifelong work. But part of me wishes I had. That would yeah. be a whole. Career. Oh yeah, yeah, that that would be me. I love languages, but I'm horrible. I think it's because I have the worst memory. Like you can tell me <laughs> a conjugation of a verb, but I'll be like, okay, I got it, and I'll repeat it ten times, and then like ten seconds later, I'm like, wait, what was it? Yeah, so I'm with you on that. It's like I love languages, but I suck at that. So you shipped yourself off to England after graduating. What made you yeah. decide to? If you were you're like, okay, I really want to work and study abroad. What made you decide to? pursue that there? Had you tried to get a job domestically or I should say in the U.S.? No, I wish I could go back to my 21, 22 year old self and ask, what were you thinking? That was very brave of you. Uh, you I know, love I had, it. I, I had a cousin that lived in London and when I had been studying abroad in France, I spent New Year's here. So it was, and it was the year 2000. So it was a really big year. And as soon as I kind of came to London, I just felt really at home. And so it seemed like a great adventure. Uh, I knew I'd wanted to live abroad again from that experience in France. So I thought, I'll just try it. Yeah. Uh, and I arrived, it took me, I want to say about three months to find a job. It was really hard. I remember feeling really down at the time. And I actually got two job offers. One was with Kappa. Uh, oh. a program. I don't even know if you know that. One was with yeah. Kappa as a program assistant of some kind. And I remember going to their office, you know, near South Kensington. Yeah. And the other was with Chelsea College of Art and Design. And I decided to go with the university over the program provider. And I'm not sure why, um, but it, it was a real, I, it was a hard decision, but I went with the university and, and yeah. had a, a wonderful experience. And for those people who may not be familiar, Kappa is a study abroad program provider. I don't know if they technically would describe themselves as that, but they do internships, island program model. They have their own centers in um, several cities around at least the US. I think in Asia too. I'm not sure where they are located. I'm not but anyway, sure actually. Go, yeah, go, go Google them. You'll find out, but they are a study abroad <laughs> provider. So, yeah. okay. So like, let's fast forward a little bit. So now sure. you're working at the Chelsea College of, of Art and Design, Design, of Art and which, Design. Is, which is now part of the University of the Arts London. Uh, okay. And which, so they have different colleges that have different sort of artistic, they have the fashion, um, Central St. Martin's is really famous for fashion and things okay. like that. So I've been working there and I made 
the interesting decision to move back to the U.S. for a boy. (laughs) (laughs) We all have to do that at one point in our lives. We all have to have a great love and be like, I'm following this person. Yeah, I need to be with them. So, (laughs) well, I did it anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so I ended up moving back to Santa Barbara and I'm really glad I did. I met one of my best friends that I'm still best friends with today and worked and applied for jobs at the education abroad program at the central office. So the University of California has a really large uh, education abroad program. And at the time when I was working there, a lot of their programs were year long or semester long. People weren't really doing these short-term programs at the time. And the central office coordinated all of their education abroad program efforts from um, an office in Santa Barbara that was not on the campus. And that was for all of the University of California campuses. And I was a program assistant. And I'm trying to think of the, the, the countries that I worked with, but France was one. I think Germany was another. Russia was one. Interesting. Visas in Russia. I learned a lot about that. Well, as uh, I was saying, like your, what was your job um, as a program assistant? What did that mean in this capacity? Because we yeah, all know so, the like, titles were like, what does that mean? <laughs> what does it actually mean? There was a program manager that oversaw particular countries and the different programs on the ground because the, the EAP model at the time is most of those programs had offices there on the ground. So when I studied abroad, for example, um, at the University of Grenoble, they had uh, a program assistant that worked full-time, but then they'd have visiting faculty that would take two-year posts. There's also California House in London, et cetera. And so as a program assistant, it was a lot of all the materials that would go to students, how to apply for visas, writing, researching that, and, and writing those handbooks, and then generally taking inquiries about what was going on. And I'll never forget, I got a phone call from a mother. Her daughter was studying abroad in France and the Iraq war had just broken out. So it was 2003. Uh, And I'll never forget the mother asked, I'm really concerned about my daughter going to France because I looked on the map and Iraq is very close to France. I'll never forget uh, fielding that call. I'm like compared to California. Yes, it is closer. I know. (laughs) Um, But I soothed her and she was fine. But that's the type of work that you're doing. So a lot of the, the materials that go out to students, the handbooks, visas was big writing the visa handbooks and how people apply for visas etc I was going to say like were you applying on behalf of students no okay great question just writing this is how you apply you should do this and then you should do this which is so funny because I mean not that that was that long ago but even like the early 2000s I feel like writing a handbook saying like here are the rules and now we know like they probably have always been this way but how quickly visa requirements and rules can kind of change on a dime. I know you've dealt with this a lot, especially in like the internship and tier four craziness of England. Yeah. (laughs) It's amazing to think that like there were like printed manuals then then the next in two weeks, it could have been like, well, actually a page four, scratch out that paragraph. You don't even need that document or there's a whole other addendum now where you need these extra things. How did you guys handle those kinds of shifts? I don't know. I was only, so I was there for, I'm like, I don't know the answer to that. I think yeah. at the time, I think the tension that we had was making sure that we were working with all the different university campuses effectively. Mm-hmm. So they were getting all the same information mm-hmm. um, because we were the central office. But I, I don't know about the shift from mm-hmm. sort of hard copy to online, but also just the, the changes. It was, it was a lot of phone calls. I think we were yeah. on the phone more versus yeah. email. So it was more in the moment phone calls. What do I do about this? What's happening with this? 
I feel like we could do a whole other podcast episodes on the power of picking up the phone, yeah. <laughs> even oh today in 2021. And I know people are like, don't call me. I don't want it. Mm-hmm. I don't want any unsolicited calls, but I just, I feel like we probably both have a lot of stories about like, and then I called them and on I called the them. phone yeah. and things got resolved quickly. Okay. So you're working at uh, the a- EAP office okay. yeah. and I mean, my next question, I don't, I don't know if I'm skipping ahead. I feel like no. I know your story, but I'm like, maybe I don't know all the bits and pieces, but then I'm like, what happens early days. Next? Yeah. So I had a friend in London who um, I'm still friends with, lives down the street. Uh, and she had sent me, she was really wanting me to return to London in the UK. And she sent me a job that she'd seen posted. And so I applied for it. Uh, and I FedEx. I FedExed my resume yes. uh, and I learned later that that actually made a big difference. They were so impressed that I FedExed it. And so I had an interview with Tony Johnson. Okay. This, that was going to be my yeah. question. Like, and when did you meet yeah. the so Tony it was, Johnson? <laughs> I was working at EAP and was thinking I wanted to move back to London. Um, things weren't going great with my boyfriend at the time. <laughs> so I thought, you know, I really miss London. I applied for this job. It was a this is amazing, but it was a placement manager job. So it was working with internship placements in London. Uh, I applied, I got an interview and I interviewed with Tony and Megan. Her name was Megan Basilius at the time. I, I don't know. I think she's changed her name. Yeah. Now. Yeah. Um, and we interviewed on the phone and I thought it went okay. And at the end of it, I think Tony called me the next day or I had another interview and Tony called me the next day and he said, you're terrible for this job. This is not the right fit for you. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, because I was new to it. I was, I had never placed a student in an internship. He said, but we really like you and we'd like you to take a job in our Boston office, but we're not really sure what it will be yet, but it's working with all of our university partners. Uh, does that sound interesting to you? And so I said, yes, I'm interested to learn more. So I ended up going to a Ben Harper concert in San Francisco and Tony who lived in London at the time happened to be in San Francisco and said, can we meet up? Uh, and so the day after the concert, I met up, we met up in his like hotel lobby with all of his family upstairs and <laughs> sat down and he, there was no preamble. He just offered me the job. I said, yes. And it's crazy because this is youth. I said, yes, there wasn't a title. We weren't really sure what I was going to do. Yeah. And he said, you have to be in Boston in a month. And so I had to quit my job and get out of my apartment and moved to Boston in a month and I did it <laughs> I love is, that story I know, it's crazy so and it, that that role turned out to be um the director of university relations for USA. so they had an, an office um in Boston um and, and Catherine Hanley um was there and uh we uh, together established this university relations office and really they were really new at the time they were definitely in startup mode mm-hmm. uh and so just figured out and created how we worked with university partners and how we worked with all of our sites and how we made it all function. Yeah. So I just wanted to be clear for all the listeners out there, because I've gotten, I've always gotten a lot of like, wait, what are you saying? USA is E-U-S-A. The original version was European Union Study Abroad. I think it had two names. I think it had a different name in Spain because Oh, right. And then, so it was, um, 
but it was European study abroad at the European time. European study abroad. Okay. Okay. And it just became you suck. You suck. But I've, I've had people, are you saying you suck? Yeah. <laughs> like you jerk. <laughs> I'm not saying. So yeah. you I think now they go by USA, but also academic internship experts. Experts. I believe that's correct. Yeah. Now. Well, we don't have to get, litigate the history of USA, but sure. uh, <laughs> so, so you were there um, in Boston hustling, basically starting a brand new operation with Catherine Hanley, your partner in crime there. Oh my gosh. Um, partner so, in crime. Love that woman. Love yeah. her. <laughs> so you had to do, obviously there was like the facilities side, like find an office. There's the hiring side. What do we need? There's the operational side. Like how do we actually do this process of yeah. working all of those things? How long did it take you to kind of get to a point where you're like, I feel like we've kind of got our shit together? <laughs> yeah, I was there, I want to say four years total, maybe four and a half, five years. And I think you, Brooke, came on board towards the end of my time there. Maybe... I came on in 2000 and January, 2007. Yeah. So I left it the next year. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the beauty of it was that we did really have a blank slate. Um, I mean, we didn't even have a spreadsheet, right? So we really started from scratch, which was wonderful. Um, And it didn't take that long because, because of that, because it was so new. Um, I'm really process oriented. So I wanted, you will remember this, you know, how do we send proposals to universities? What's our onboarding system for them? How did, what's their journey? Um, Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget, there was a conference where all of us USINs got together in Paris and I just started and Catherine Hanley and I went around the conference room with everyone with a water bottle that was a student and another one that was a university. And we just mapped it out. This is how we work with students. This is how we work with universities um, with a good old water bottle. Uh, And so- I know. So I want to say it was maybe two and a half years where it felt maybe three. Um, I felt like when I left, because uh, I left to travel, I felt like I, I hope I left it in a pretty good space where there was still room for improvement, but we had the bones of it. Yeah. Um, and a I lot mean, of I'm not going to lie. Are- as so like this is where our stories merge, as yeah. you mentioned. So Sam was the first person to hire me for my first big kid job. You were my first job offer, but you were the job offer I accepted. (laughs) But this is not about me, but I was very excited. I remember my first impression. I was thinking about this before we got on because I was like, I feel like Sam Cooper is such a a force. I remember my first impression of you. Granted, I was like in a haze and a fog when I first met met you. Actually, no, let's rewind. I was so excited about this interview because you offered me an interview. I was living in China at the time. Right. Yeah. And we had scheduled, had this whole schedule to like have a phone because you had to call me. There was an earthquake where I was living hey, and the internet right. was out and I couldn't even message you to say, cause this is um, old people. This is like before <laughs> smartphones and before I could be like, get on the, what, you know, the G5G yeah. or whatever and message you. I just couldn't, the phones were out. Internet was out. we had power, but like nothing else. And so I was like, oh my God, I'm never going to get this job. Like I didn't show up for an interview. And so when I finally got reconnected, I messaged you right away and was like, I am so sorry. Like there was an earthquake and you were like, yeah, no problem. And I was like, (laughs) um, she's either like the most generous person in the world, or she is really struggling to find somebody for this job. (laughs) (laughs) No, Um, I mean, these things happen. You were in China. I got it. It, Yeah. at the time, if you remember, everyone, those things happened. 
They still yeah. do, but they yeah. didn't have it. Yeah. yeah. And, and then, um, when I came in for my interview, so you offered me sort of an in-person interview and I don't even know if they still do this, especially now pre after or during yeah. COVID, if people are just only doing virtual interviews, um, or if we'll go back to like the in-person on campus on site yeah. stuff in the future, that'll be interesting to see. But yeah. So then you were like, okay, come into the office spinner interview. And I was like, okay. And I was like, well, I'm flying back from China to the U S on this day. And I'm, I'm flying into Boston cause I flew out of Boston. Gotcha. And I was like, uh, you're like, can you do it this day? And I was like, yes. And I was like landing at 7am. I think my interview was like at 10am. I went oh. to my friends. Um, she was a resident director at Simmons college. Yes. So I like took wow. a cab to her house, took a shower, gulped down like a billion gallons of coffee and like showed up like with coffee, which is so not professional. Don't show up with your own beverage to an interview. But I was like, I need this. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, I just thought it was uh really interesting. No, I, I remember. remember sitting across from you and being like, wow, like I just felt you were so and it wasn't like I felt it. I saw it. I experienced it. It was you were so articulate and confident in what you had built. I just remember thinking like, I want to learn from this person. There were a lot of reasons I wanted this, this particular mm. job versus other offers I got, but I was just like, I'm going to learn so much. And I, I'm not saying this because you're here. It's like absolutely <laughs> true. I mean, there's so many times in my career, I could probably think back and I was like channeling a little Sam Cooper juju is great. So thank you I for mean hiring me and letting me learn from you. Thank you. That these are very kind words, and uh, often I try and channel Brooke Roberts, so it's mutual. It's mutual, and I, I have to say, I've said it before, but I'll say it again. After your interview, after you left the room, I did turn to Kate Moore and say, "I hope that woman hires me someday because you are very impressive in an interview." <laughs> I was probably like, "I'm here to get shit done," and it like so serious, like, "Oh my gosh!" Um, and you do, and you do get shit done. <laughs> So, okay, let's, uh, you already hinted at this, but let's fast forward because I think this is one of the really inspiring and maybe even surprising for people about your stories. Like if you hear your story to this point, you're like, okay, she's doing, she's making the move. She's like working her way up through the field, new titles, new experiences, new program exposure, all these things. And I don't know, even know what was it you wanted to be when you grew up in international ed? You know, like, did you have like, oh, my eyes on this prize? You know, as you said, you were at USA for about five years and decided I'm done. What, what made you take sure. this next step? And what was that next step? I wanted to do something else. I felt like I'd reached a point with USA where I wanted to gain more experience in another organization or setting. But actually, I also was young. I was 28 and um, I'd miss, I was in Boston. Remember I meant to go back to London. So I was in Boston and I just felt like, what about my travels? What, what about me living in other countries? And so I quit <laughs> to travel and, and that is legitimately it. And I think it was before people do this all the time and they were doing it at the time. But I remember getting a lot of people saying, I can't believe you're doing this and traveling on your own. I got that from a lot of women where I don't think you'd get that today. I think people would be like, yeah, of course you're traveling. I just wanted to travel and I wanted to keep learning and I wanted some different experiences. And some of it was, I wanted to keep learning. Like I said, so, and I'd also 
kind of had a romanticized view of teaching English in another country because you had done that and you know the other people I knew had done it had great experiences so I just thought it would be great for my career anyway but also selfishly I just wanted to do it for myself so um, I quit my job I, I gave notice don't worry we put all those plans in place um, yes. and I just went I bought a one-way ticket to Guatemala and I had three goals thanks to Catherine Hanley she said you got to have goals to stay on track and I said great and so I wanted to learn Spanish I wanted to volunteer and I wanted to get certified to teach English and so that was kind of the, my guiding principles so I started in Guatemala I started um learning Spanish. And then I went to Buenos Aires and I did a TEFL program and got a certificate and started teaching English there and thought maybe I would stay, but then ended up getting restless and wanting to travel. And so kind of traveled back up um, through South America. And that was about, I want to say eight months, went back for Christmas, saw some people. I think I saw you, I, we did see each other in Boston. We have pictures, proof. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I had always wanted to go to Nepal I went and volunteered there for a month, um, visited some friends in um, China. I also went to Hong Kong. And then I thought I, my Spanish in Guatemala, I'd learned sitting across from this amazing guy named Pedro, but never in a classroom. We just sat for hours on end looking at each other and talking. So I didn't really have any written stuff. I just learned it from talking to people and Buenos Aires. And then Argentina is like a whole other accent. So I was oh, all yeah. over the place. I was all over the place. Uh, so I decided I'm going to go to Spain and I'm going to do a semester of Spanish lessons and classes. Um, I was the oldest one in the class. It was a full of a bunch of kids doing gap years. They were all 18, 19. Uh, I was, I turned 30. So I was sitting in there with all these 18 year olds ended up kind of traveling through Europe. And then I just got really tired because you do and thought I should really make some money now and go back to work. <laughs> <laughs> I spent it all. It's I gone. spent it all. <laughs> and you know what? A lot of that was funded. Obviously, um, I saved up. I did teach English and work. Um, but all my um, airfare was covered from the hustle of USA. So doing all of those flights around the US and abroad um, for university relations, I had all those those mileages and points. And that's mm. what I used to get around the world ticket and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, podcast episode idea. We should have some road lawyers, um, a couple yeah. others on that. And we could talk about like how to, how to get the, how to squeeze the most out of the, all that travel that you have to do as a road that's warrior. A great idea. Yeah. Yes, please. Yeah. Uh, let's do it. Stay tuned for that, ladies and gentlemen. So I love <laughs> that you did that and that you made that investment in yourself. Um, and I don't know, obviously I'm biased. Everybody knows this, but I, I feel like that experience, frankly, like even for me, like, even though I'd already, I taught English abroad, the whole idea of like actually traveling around, I was always inspired by you doing that. I think also maybe right after, right before that, another woman, Megan, um, she had gone yeah. to do a, a month or three months yeah. or something volunteering too. And I, uh, she also was leaving the company and I was just like, I want to do that. How do I, how do I do that? <laughs> and which inspired me in many ways as well. And, you know, I think it is really powerful because later on it took me basically, I don't know, I want to say maybe 10 more years before I did something similar, but I was obviously I had my own company by then and could work from anywhere. But I, I just think as international educators, the idea of at some point in your, after you've had some experience in the field, you've been on the ground working with young people, making the, you know, an administration, you know, really understanding the inner workings of what we do. 
I think we can also get kind of jaded or um, have a lens about the experience that is only rooted in administration of the experience or our own experience from when we were in college or when we did a gap year when we were really young. And I feel like we should all be required after 10 years working in the field, you have to go invest in your own meaningful travel experience again, whether that's like a month studying Spanish or, you know, volunteering, whatever, whatever you want to do. Because I feel like the, the experience of being a participant changed so much from when I studied abroad as a young person to now, like what it's like to like land in a foreign country and navigate that experience. But there's also new types of challenges, I think as well, like some parts I think are easier, but there's some parts are also now harder. Um, and I think for us as administrators and people spearheading the future of these types of programs, we really need to understand like, what is it actually like on the ground? We might think it's going to be these things, but what is it truly? And I think the fact that you invested in your own experience for your own, you know, personal growth and development is I think number one, most important, but then also now you get to take a whole new perspective of like what it feels like to, to land in a new place and figure out your life and how you're going to function and all the things, which is probably very different than when you landed in Grenoble. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with you a hundred percent. I think we all need to mix it up every now and then, but also just put ourselves back in, in that vulnerable place of, you know, that feeling right before you land in a plane and you're in, you're going to a foreign country, maybe you have plans for that night, but you don't have the next one. That yeah. feeling, I think we all need to be reminded yeah. of that scary little feeling that. Yeah. Cause I know I like, even, you know, when I was still, and, and even after go abroad, when it was, it's just been my, my own businesses, it's like, yeah, I mean, I've gone traveled for conferences or yeah. um, consulting projects in different parts of the world, but it was all like work related. It was like funded through work and we've all been there. It's like, Oh, you're going to go to yeah. forum conference in Europe. And it's like, you didn't have to invest your own hard-earned cash into like making your own experience really valuable. Yes, there's other motivations for making that a valuable trip as well. But I just think, yeah, there's nothing like you like saying, I'm investing in myself and my own experience. I just think that's really powerful. You came back, you're like, I want to earn some money. I'm tired. Yeah. Um, did you feel like you had a better sense then that of like what you truly wanted to do in the field? Did it give you a better self-understanding of like, oh, I th- here's where I think I want to be? It's a, that's a really great question. And it's interesting looking back on it now. I thought I did. I thought coming back from traveling and this goes back to just the culture shock and that of being on the road and then, and coming back to the U S um, in lots of different ways, coming back to the field, there was culture shock there. Um, I, I really thought I wanted to focus more on meaningful travel and service learning and uh, things like that which are still very important to me. My initial idea when I came back, I came back to Boston was to just apply for jobs and get a, a job back in the field or work in sort of a nonprofit space, especially from volunteering. Um, I still really passionate about education, uh, but wanted to maybe impact different communities um, and have uh, more of a positive impact. I think that all got lost in the very real reality that it's really hard to get a job in international ed. And even though I'd had pretty good experience, I would say it was almost impossible to get back in without taking a huge jump down. And also I got told over and over again, I didn't have a master's degree, so I wasn't Mm -hmm. a valid candidate. I got that told that a lot. So 
I would be, I, I can't lie. It was a really rough transition back from traveling. And it really felt like I derailed my career in some ways. Um, but I don't mean that in a negative way. I would never, it was one of the best things I've ever done. I would never change that. But I was surprised. I was legitimately surprised at how difficult it was to get back into the fields, um, mm -hmm. given how much experience I'd already had. Mm -hmm. And even the experience I then continued to do while I was traveling, you know, it wasn't yeah. really time off. I wasn't on a beach um, yeah. getting drunk. You know, that wasn't one of <laughs> my goals. You know, yeah, I yeah. want to keep growing. If anything, you upskilled in so many ways. Yeah, that was the, that was the idea. Um, mm -hmm. And I think I was young. I was curious. I wanted to see what else I could do in the field. I spent some time job hunting, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it took me about a year to find the right job. I had some temporary jobs. I had the wrong job um, that I quit. Best thing I ever did. <laughs> um, and I ended up taking a... Um, a more travel position with Babson College um, as their first brick program coordinator. So um, they had a brick program, which stands, stands for Brazil, Russia, India, China. And the program, um, it didn't go to Brazil, but it went to Russia, India, um, China, and India in that order. And um, so I took that job um, and really grateful for it. It was a great experience. But that took me back on the path of working at universities. So I did that for, I think it was six or seven months. And then luckily they had an opening for a study abroad advisor and I took that job. And that's when I realized that study abroad advising is not for me. <laughs> I thought it would be, I, I was, was legitimately interested when I took the job. Yeah. Um, but I think I, what I loved about working at USA is the amount, the different programs and universities and people and students that you could interact with. You know, it wasn't one university, it was several. It wasn't one program, it was several. I love that part. I love being in that space of, of working across different programs. I don't want you to have to like relive the struggle like too much, <laughs> but I feel like so many people who listen to this podcast might feel like they are in that right yeah. now, especially yeah. for our field right now. And whether it's like they don't have enough experience and they're being told, or they have, they're overqualified, they have too much experience, the type of job they're trying to get. And so, or, you know, all the things that you kind of just mentioned, they might not have a master's degree, but tons of experience. Were you also limited because were you fully focused on Boston, like the surrounding region, or were you doing a nationwide international Great UK question. jobs? Um, yeah. What do you think there were other elements that were limiting you beyond just some of those other um, elements you mentioned? A hundred percent. And it was Boston. I was focused on Boston um, at the time. And that was very limiting. There's a lot yeah. of universities and colleges in Boston, but it's also really competitive. So yeah. that did limit me. And I wish I had looked further afield, but then I did. Yeah. Um, so in that process, you know, I was very lucky to get the study abroad job. Um, and then an opportunity came up to go back to USA to do a maternity cover. And that was perfect. Cause as I'd been there, I realized I need to go to grad school. I wanted to go to grad school. Mm. And so that's when I made that decision. So I'd been 12 years out of undergrad to go back to grad school. Um, and because I, one, I wanted to, it was also something like travel. I thought I really should do this. Everyone I knew had a master's degree. Mm -hmm. So there was definitely peer pressure. Um, but I also, I like learning. I'm a lifelong learner. So I thought it would be really interesting. And so once I, that that's the path that it then took me on. Um, but if I had opened myself up to further afield and outside of Boston, it, I think it would have been easier and it would have opened up more mm -hmm. opportunities. Yeah. But I'd be, I'd I be imagine 
Sorry. Right. Uh, I, I also imagine like just knowing you and knowing what you built at USA and just your personality. I'm like, there had to been like so many providers that you could have easily been like, Hey, I'm, I'm, in, I'm looking, they would have yeah. been like, where do we sign? Take all our money. We're well, hire I mean, you. I don't know if I was as networked then. I mean, uh, really with you a, a little bit, a little bit, but maybe with universities, but not with other providers. Right. I think, okay. I think from that experience, I've joined local associations and got really involved. So you are forming those, yeah. those relationships with people across the aisle as it were, mm-hmm. but um, no, it was rough. It was rough out there. I think it's rough all the time. Fast forward Fast a little forward. bit. So you decided to go to grad school. I know you went to Portland State University. You decided to do a master's in public administration, yeah. uh, which it might surprise people because everyone's like international ed, international ed. What made you decide to do that type of program? And we've already done an episode about grad school. So go listen to last week's episode where we can dive deeper in, into the grad school thing. But for you specifically, what was it about Portland and this program mm-hmm. that made you go, this is for me? I heard amazing things about Portland, Oregon. I'd been back in Boston for a while. I just finished a relationship. I was ready to leave Boston. Always these relationships, my friends, they're always coming. We're either in. running to them or running from them. <laughs> right. Um, I wanted out of Boston. I had a really good friend in Portland, uh, Ann Haberkern. Uh, I'd heard about a program that was related to service learning. I didn't end up doing that program, but that's how I got interested. Uh, there was a NASA conference, I think in Vancouver. So I took the opportunity to visit my friend in Portland, visit the university. Um, Her husband had been doing a program at the university as well. So she just walked me through, here's the program. This is what you should do, et cetera. And I just liked it. I like Portland. And I knew I didn't want to study international education. I'm more of a practitioner. uh, And that's why public administration really appealed to me. I, I wanted to learn something new. I wanted to learn how organizations function. I was really interested in nonprofit management. And so that's what led me to the NPA. Okay. Um, degree. Yeah. It was a two year program. What are the things from that program? Like what are two like big things that you feel like you learned that have been serving you well now back in a career in international ed? I know I just sprung that on you. No, that's fine. (laughs) Uh, No, it's good. It's a good reflective question. Uh, I did have an amazing class um, around higher ed administration. It wasn't a core piece, um, but I remember that being, I just geeked out on that. And, you know, I would do things differently a million times. I think we all would, you know, maybe I should have studied higher ed administration, something else. What I liked about it is it reminded me of what students are going through, how to be a student. Um, Mm. It made me a better writer and critical thinker. Um, And I met some amazing people in that worked and studied in this nonprofit space and international development. And I just learned a lot from them. Uh, but it also pushed me back to international ed. I, I, it made me realize how much I love international ed. My thesis was on how to build a culture of, of study abroad at Portland Community College, where I was also working at the time. And I just liked the idea of studying universities from a business perspective and also uh, learning from people and practitioners. Um, it was very practical based and that worked really, really well for me. That's awesome. All right. Home stretch. Well, sort of. Well, we still have so many twists and turns to discuss. So I hope you guys are ready. I hope everybody has a glass of wine or a warm <laughs> cup of coffee. Uh, so you finished grad school and I'm sorry if I'm just glossing over anything other okay. happened during grad school, but you finished grad school and now you have another like round of like, I got to 
I'm, I'm not gotta, but like you want to get a job now as a result. Yeah. What? So before you tell us what happened and where you went, what was the application process like this time? Now they sure. had those elusive letters behind your name. Well, you're going to hate me because I, I only applied for one job. So what happened was well, while I was, <laughs> because it's, it's not what anyone wants to hear, but I actually think it's a good lesson. So I was in grad school. I was finishing. I was supposed to finish, I think in March. And I got a call from USA because they were hiring for a London director. And I was planning on staying in Portland and they invited me to apply. It was a lot of soul searching. It was, I wasn't expecting it. I applied. Wait, before you say like any more of the details, let's, I feel like we need to paint a little bit more of a picture of what was happening internally in USA. Cause I feel like if somebody doesn't know, they might hear like, oh, so just your old friend, Tony Johnson was like, Hey, want no, a okay. job. Not right. Happy. So that's not, it's, it's the same company, but a whole new uh, cast of characters involved. That's right. Yeah. It, Tony Johnson was no longer part of USA. Um, so it was the d- director of operations at the time, Terrence. Um, we'd met from my previous stint in Boston doing maternity cover. They were hiring for a new London director. They knew I had dual citizenship. They knew I'd worked at USA before uh, and I applied and I got it. I had to finish grad school early. So it's finished in March. I ended up finishing in December. It was a rush to the finish line. I still feel my body is healing (laughs) from that process um, because they needed me to start in January. So I finished in December. I think I had, you know, Christmas and then had to pack up my life and, and move to London. So it's one of the, it's definitely one of the better decisions I've ever made. It was really hard to leave Portland, Oregon. It's an amazing place, but it was a big, it felt like a big kid job. You know, it was a site director. It was managing 10 people. I was scared. I think I would have been stupid not to be scared. I think those are the jobs you have to take. I was also ready. Uh, and it really pushed me into this sort of definitively into this area of work-based learning, um, which I obviously I knew that I knew I liked from working at USA years before, but I'd never been on the delivery side. It was a happy mistake, I guess, or a happy coincidence that I ended up going back to them and and then really, I think kind of finding my a really true vocation of helping yeah. students in their careers right. that I'd always liked and talked about, but this was focus on it. I will say and I'm, I'm not an expert on Sam Cooper, but I'm pretty close. And I feel like just having seen and working with you on the university relations side of like communicating, like what is the program going to look like on the ground? Um, but we weren't actually the ones working directly with the students and making the placements and seeing you operate in that world. You're so good. And so great at those relationship developing and like I still am not good at it. I'm still still trying to learn from you. But what I but but I think now um, as I've I've worked with you now on the internship placement side or the work placement side of things, both with Inside Study Abroad, seeing the work that you were doing with all these other places, I won't spoil it, and then what you're doing now, I'm just like, oh my gosh, like yes, this woman yeah. is, you are so good at it. I'm sorry. I'm not here to just like puff you up, but like, you are so good at it. Like I couldn't have asked for a better person to partner with on our own internships for uh, the global pro Institute, because I'm just like, I could never do it that well. 
and you're just, and you love it. That's what the thing is about it. Just, I was like, you're not only good, but you love it. That process. Yeah. And I'm like, don't make me have this conversation. You're like, I'll do it. I love it. I want to do it. I truly see that in you too. I don't know if you mean to do it, but you do exude that energy of like, this is my ish. Like I am yeah. in my zone of genius. I love this stuff. Yeah. And it's, it's crazy. Cause I'd obviously been flirting in the world of internships right, right. since 2003. I mean, that's what USA does, you know, yeah. internship programs. And so that's kind of where I started and cut my teeth as they say. And so it's funny that I thought that whole time thinking I needed to be somewhere else. I think that was necessary. I think that's why people should do work experience because you have to try things to know you like them or don't like them. Uh Uh, But I really feel like I did land in a, in a zone where I feel useful and helpful. And I feel like I'm constantly learning. Um, I love learning about different companies and how different people function and the projects they do. And it's effectively just, you know, getting people to talk about themselves and, and learn all about them. So, yeah. So I came to London landed and I think I had a, a week and then started a brand new big kid job as I like to say <laughs> <laughs> which you've had before which I think is I've so had funny before I think I think it'd be silly not to admit that everyone feels this way I think in every next job you have there is the fear factor and I think if you don't have it then then maybe you know you're not yeah. reaching kind of high enough yeah so I was at USA for about a year and a half and I noticed that there was an opportunity with the Academic Internship Council, which um, was the organization. So Tony started with Aiden Hayes USA, uh, then they sold it, I want to say in 2013, and started their own offshoot called the Academic Internship Council, which was then bought by uh, CIEE. And they were opening a London office. I was really annoyed that they didn't contact me to let me know that they were starting it. Um, but I realized after the fact it's because they had a non-compete, so they couldn't contact me. So I remember, oh, that makes I remember sense. my email to Kate Moore and we finally talked. I was like, Kate, why didn't you tell me? She's like, yes. you. <laughs> you have to come to me, woman. <laughs> yeah. Um, That's a really, I love these insider yep, little nuggets. That's so scoop. fun. Yeah. yeah. But you so, yeah. reached out to them. And so then it was fair game. I reached out to them to say, because I hadn't heard from them, I was nervous that, well, maybe they didn't want to hear from me, right? So, right. and obviously I'm friends with Kate Moore. We, we've kept in contact. So I reached out to her to say, would you welcome kind of an application from me? And we had a chat and talked about it. And then I ended up applying. Still can't believe they said yes. I'm always surprised. <laughs> we, it's very weird interviewing with people you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, you know, we had an interview process and and then I was I was offered the job over a glass of wine. It's the best job offer. (laughs) Oh my God. Those are the best. I I just submitted um, a big like consulting package proposal to a company who it happens to be run by someone I know really well. And so it was just half the time I was just like, kind of giggling when I was doing my little presentation and like saying, breaking down the project proposal for him. And I was just like, do we really need to do this? Like, (laughs) but yes, you do. You do need to do these things. You do have to do it. um, But it was just also very weird because I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> We've gotten a little tipsy together. Like yeah. this seems weird. <laughs> That's just um, international ed. You've been yeah. tipsy with most people. Yeah. yeah. So basically you went, you were running an existing office with USA and they had yeah. a team and staff and probably some operational things. Not to say that you didn't improve oh, yeah. upon those there systems. There was stuff there. Yeah, absolutely. But with AIC, now you're jumping into doing something very similar, but like starting one from a blank slate. So I feel like we understand what that is. What I want to know from you 
what did you improve upon now that you got to start your own version of the USA experience in, in London as AIC, what were some of like the two things that you're like, I'm absolutely changing this. I'm absolutely keeping that. Yeah. Great question. I think the very first thing is you absolutely have to keep strict processes with students because they're there because of the mistakes that previous people have made. I think everyone <laughs> should know that about international ed. There's a reason there's policies and procedures because the, the, every one of them is because a student did something drunk or did this to an employer or something. Right. Like there's reasons there. Right. Um, so I definitely um, kept the process of how, how you know we work with students. I think one of the big things I definitely wanted to change was our relationship with employers, especially in the UK um, and mm-hmm. London. It's a very networked, place um, and British people they build relationships through you know going to the pub and having a coffee or a drink or things like that and so the big thing I wanted to do is actually bring the reality of the business world into the reality of international ed you mm. know these students yeah they're studying abroad but they're also going into someone's business and so I really wanted to make that link stronger um, so we started adding events for employers um, receptions um, and even talks that were for students, but that the employers would find helpful. So bringing in speakers, uh, because it's all a part of the ecosystem of industry and education. And I, I, that was something I just, it just felt right. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that works really well. And those are things I'd, I'd continue to do. And, yeah. you know, on the student side, again, processes, but also be a little bit more upfront and human with them. You know, I think one of the big things I advocated for in the process of when you first meet a student to talk about their internship interests is to be honest with them and say it. We're going to have an open and honest conversation. You are, you do not yet have the experience to do what you want to do, but why don't you do this first? Because then your next experience will set you up for that. And they need, students need to hear that. We all need to hear that because it's not doing them any service to say, sure, I can get you an investment banking internship. No, I cannot. You have never, you've been a lifeguard. Therefore, (laughs) and you've taken three classes in finance. Yeah, right. So let's get you that first one. And I think we had a, I, I, that was one of the things I felt important was let's just, these are students, they're humans. Let's be accessible to them, but let's also be honest. I mean, the struggle is often real. It it sounds easier than it is, but yeah. Well, that sounds amazing. And I'm sure we could talk more about like, just like the, the, sure. you've done it now several times. I've done We could do a whole other episode. Maybe we will about what it's like to just start from scratch. Start, yeah. Yeah. But I feel like now we're getting into something that's more recent and raw. So now AIC, so when you joined AIC, were they already part of CIEE? Yes. Okay. I so, think for a couple years by then. Yeah. Okay. So you've basically at this point joined a startup slash inside of a very big, like established behemoth of an organization. That's correct. I'm trying to say things that aren't (laughs) negative, but also describe like, it's an old dog. It knows its tricks. It's not learning new stuff. (laughs) Yeah. It's a big, it's a big organization with, you know, thousands of people. So it's a lot different than working in a 20 organization. 20 person organization. Right, yeah. right, right. What was that kind of transition just even going from more of the 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 tiny company to like a mm-hmm. huge huge brand and organization in our field? It's funny because at the time that's what I wanted. I wanted to move to a bigger organization uh cuz I thought it might have more stability, which makes me giggle now. <laughs> oh, the things we think Spoiler. in uh, 2016. Yeah. yeah. Um and I thought it would offer more opportunities. 
to grow, move into different roles, et mm-hmm. cetera. Um, you know, after setting things up, you know, that would have been interesting to me. They have a global uh, yeah. presence, et cetera. Um, I think the reality is very similar to any any study abroad organization of any size is that there's the office in the US and then there's the offices in the, the different cities and locations. And they fundamentally don't always talk to each other um, or have an open channel of communication that makes sense because we're dealing across cultures. So that was a surprise to me to not know who are we working with, right? Who Am I working with the people in London? Am I working with people in sort of headquarters? Um, but that's just also figuring out larger organizations. So I think I realized I liked being in the smaller, more agile startup division of a larger company because I could still do what we needed to do to act quickly and, and I think innovate faster. Um, but then you still had the stability of the larger organization. But the processes and the bigger are rough, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, the bureaucracy of that the bureaucracy and also just who can help me on this that yeah. oh, sometimes took a long time who's right. the right person right. um and yeah it was harder to get answers to questions they took a lot longer yeah so it's february 2020 you're yeah. uh running the basically the cie london internship program yeah am i describing that correctly yeah. um and at what point were you, what were things starting to heat up either on the ground as delivering the programs um, with students on the ground slash internally with, am I going to have a job kind of conversations? It's funny. I think for everyone, if you look back, you know, a year ago, I think even, you know, a few weeks ago, I thought, wow, I, I remember how quickly it happened and it did happen really quickly. So February wise, we were kind of business as usual. The only difference is we'd move some of our programs in China, for example, to come to London. People were trying to pivot and offer, you know, Chinese language classes in London. So people, students could still travel, but not go to China. Um, but it, it all happened very quickly. And it was a two week period of time. Uh, there was a sort of global conference call or Zoom call um, where we learned that um, we would have to make some drastic cuts. So I think we learned on a Friday, um, the anniversary just passed. So last last Friday, actually the 26th of March was when we all found out we'd lost our jobs. But the week before they said there's gonna be about 75% cuts. And then the, the following week is when they, they announced, announced on Zoom that the AIC division had been- Disbanded. Um, uh, yeah, I can't remember the word they used, but um, discontinued or- Shuttered. Yeah. Um, and so, and that was it. And so I, that was Friday. We stopped working. And, and just to clarify for everybody, if you're tracking with us, this is uh, CIEE, one of the largest companies in the meaningful travel industry. Um, they do inbound, outbound, J1, study, like all sorts, volunteer, all sorts of types of things. So it's a huge organization, not just study abroad. And they ended up laying off 75%. I think 70? the initial was around 75 to 80%. I think it was 700 people in that first. I think they, they I mean, I know they went on to make further cuts. So I yeah. don't know what the, the yeah. ultimate um, yeah. cut was, but it was massive. Yeah. What was that like for you? It was horrible. You know, I'm managing people um, at the time and it's horrible to have 
you're going through it while your staff are going through it and you just have no answers for them either. Mm -hmm. um, it was also a hectic time for everybody. Um, it was a low point. I mean, I'd never want it to happen to anyone, to be perfectly honest. I also felt bad. You know, my boss was Kate Moore at the time. Um, she just found out and she had two weeks notice. Um, but us people outside the U.S., it all depended on the country you were in. So we were mm -hmm. very, very lucky to have government support here that helped us get through that. But effectively, we we stopped working on the 26th of March um, and never went back. Um, yeah, it was it was it's it is it's crazy. It, it was, was so abrupt. Time. I remember we kind of reconnected and we started like zooming every day. It felt like yeah. we were on a Zoom call we every day, just yeah. chatting. Not and it wasn't work related. We we're just like, how's it going? What's going on? Yeah. yeah, I just remember every day it was sort of like, and yeah, we got this email, and then yeah, I got to go get my thing out of the office and whatever. You yeah. know, it's like it was so so crazy. And I know a lot of people listening may have had a very similar type of very abrupt ending, which is so, so sad. And, and I know that a lot of people were making some really, really hard oh, decisions as well. Yeah. It's not just, I obviously exactly. if you still have your job, you're lucky and good for you. Um, but also I know that's a hard thing just internally to have to decide who, who do we keep impossible. Yeah. And I feel for people on both sides because it's also horrible to lose a bunch of colleagues and be left. And mm -hmm. it was rough. And this is going a lot longer. Thank you everybody for <laughs> listening in and tuning in with us this long, but Sam has just such a wonderful, amazing story and hopefully you're enjoying it. If you are, leave us a rating and review. I hardly ever ask that anymore, but leave us a review on <laughs> iTunes. We'd like to hear from you. So Sam, you got laid um, off from CIEE or furloughed. I'm not sure what the technical term was for that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the division, they eliminated the division. I think that's the word they used. So I didn't have a job to go back to, but in the UK, they had a furlough scheme. So it was like okay. a delayed redundancy or a, um, however you would call it. Um, so yeah, I had some money coming in from the government, but I knew I didn't have a job to go right. back to. Right, right. Okay. And so now you have to decide like what's next and getting a job and all the uh, things. So I'm just going <laughs> to fly through this part. In many of our conversations, we talked about how I was always like, I wanted to have an internship component for the Global Pro Institute. And she was like, I love that stuff. And I'm like, that's great because I don't want to do that stuff. <laughs> and, and it was like a perfect mind meld. Um, and so now Sam uh, works with me inside of GPI kind of as her side hustle, I would call it. And she manages the internship component of the Global Pro Institute program. But in addition to that, you also went through a job search process and yeah. during a pandemic all online. Can you describe a little bit about what that looked like? What did that actually look like logistically? Like sure. what were you doing? Well, first I panicked severely. <laughs> I didn't want let's to mention be, that. Part. <laughs> no, let's be really honest, everyone. Um, I had a kind of an extended anxiety attack, which I think we have to be honest about this. It is scary to lose your job in a pandemic. I would be lying if I said I was fine. I wasn't fine. It's really, really hard. I also knew that I, it was going to be a good opportunity. And I know that sounds crazy, but I had already been thinking about moving on from AIC and CIEE. Um, and so in some ways there was a little bit of this was the kick and it's terrible timing, but here we go. We have to do it anyway. Um, and it is scary, you know, um, I'm, I'm like the head of household in my family with my husband. So it was a real thought of where's the rent coming and how are we paying our bills and things like that. Um, but I think one of the things I immediately leaned on was just the network 
I just started talking to people and people that I knew and trusted and I could be open and honest with and I didn't have to pretend. Um, and that's where I had the amazing opportunity to work with Brooke again. I mean, I've learned so much from you over this year. It's crazy. When's our year anniversary, friend? I don't Coming know. up. And now. I'll have to go back and look. It's, it's been up. at least a year. Yeah. Or maybe just and we started talking. Here. Yeah. 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 Um, and so, but those conversations and talking to people about projects really kept me going. Um, I contacted some other providers just to see if, you know, freelance work would work. And then I posted on LinkedIn. And from that post, um, someone at the University of Roehampton that I knew in the study abroad um, area. So what did you post specifically? Oh, I posted to say really to celebrate AIC um, because it had come to an end and it was that group of colleagues was such an amazing, inspiring, smart, motivated, innovative group of people. And I was sad, you know, it was a good group of people to work with. And I felt like I was constantly being pushed and learning and I wanted to celebrate that. Um, and so I posted that and shared that I was on furlough because that was the term we were using in the UK and didn't explicitly say that I was looking for work, but people in the UK would know. I did a British post, right? right. <laughs> it was very understated. Um, and so I had just met someone at the University of Roehampton study abroad office in January, because we were maybe going to be working together with some of their American students. And he saw that I posted and immediately messaged me. So the power of also kind people mm -hmm. and said, I know our placement team is hiring. Would you like to meet the head of placements? And I said, sure. And I had yeah. a conversation, not really intending to apply, but I really liked her. And we had a great conversation and I applied. At the same time, I applied for one other job in uh, study abroad. Never heard back from them. Never heard back. Ooh, I really want to know who no it was, but I won't make you say. <laughs> not even an acknowledge. I, and then talked with people. So from that experience, it was a lot of networking and chatting with people and applied for two jobs and then got one of them. Okay, right. So. Well, do you mind talking a little bit about like your, because we had conversations about this yeah. kind of leading you in this question a little <laughs> bit because I kind of know the answer, but because I know it was kind of a hard even decision. Like even when you got the offer, right. because the nature of the role, the salary, the title, the responsibility level was, it's kind of, kind of going back to when you came back from traveling where you're kind yes. of opportunities that weren't really matching your level experience, all these things. I'm not, I don't want to say you took a step down, but it, there was, were some considerations like being a director of the London internship program for a huge organization. And then this role that was truncated, I would say yeah. comparatively, how did you make that kind of decision? Yeah. I, or was it just like, it's pandemic, I'm taking a job. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a mix of both. I, I, we obviously, I talked a lot about it with Friends. I talked a lot about it with people that I um, had been in similar situations. The consideration for me, it was a pay cut for sure. It was less responsibility. Um, I had been managing people. I'd been running an entire office. Um, and this was a very focused job. Um, I wasn't managing people. It had a very clear directive. And I realized through talking with people that this was the right decision for me at this time, mm -hmm. because uh, it was quite traumatic to lose my job. I'd also personally been through some trauma over the past couple of years and maybe just needed to focus on um, a job where uh, I liked the work and I could grow with it. And that's the big piece. In talking with my future boss, now boss, 
I knew that there was room to grow. And that was very clear in our conversation. It was very clear in the interview and, and the job spec that they put out. So I knew there would be opportunity. Um, and so it was an oppor- it was a taking a risk at future opportunity. And I'm really, really glad I did. Also getting back into a university, which in some ways is more structured, has more stability, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you never know now. Yeah. Um, but those were all things that I weighed up. I liked the people, I liked my boss, I liked the work. Mm-hmm. It was setting up something new. So I knew I was in my zone, right, of, mm-hmm. of capability. I knew I could do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just, but it wasn't an easy decision. It took mm-hmm. me a long time to get to that point. And, and I don't I think, think with, sorry, go oh, sorry. I was gonna say, I think there's still people struggling with that. You know, it's okay, I think, to make lateral moves or moves down if it's, it's helping you get on that next S curve, right? Mm-hmm. This, this curve, it's going to keep going up for me. And I know that. And that's why I made that decision. Because mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. really my S curve with CIE was coming to an end. So I just right. had to, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that, oh, I love that. Ooh, if you're not watching this interview over <laughs> on our YouTube channel, she just did a little squiggly that showed you exactly what that was all about. So you have to go watch on the YouTube channel. <laughs> a couple of things you mentioned there that I wanted to follow up with is, one, we haven't actually said like, where do you work? What's your role? What yeah, are you sorry. doing now? And which I should have probably led with this. Sorry, everybody, if you listen this long, <laughs> um, what are you doing now? So I am the um, senior placements and business engagement manager at the University of Roehampton, specifically working with our Roehampton Business School postgraduates. And actually, I just got a promotion. So I knew yeah. there would be growth and I got some growth and I am hiring. So I will have a team soon. Uh, so my risk paid off. But effectively, what I do is uh, very similar to what I've done in the past, uh, work with students to help them on employability, their own employability and career development. Uh, and I also work with employers to help match them with students um, that want to do a placement as part of their degree. So internship we- placement, we say placement here in the UK. Mm-hmm. And which is also what she does inside the Global Pro Institute. So you guys are getting a true pro here if you join. (laughs) And then the other part I kind of, I wanted to follow up with kind of a theme I I heard from what you just described Mm -hmm. and making that decision about this role at this stage in your career. As I think for those listening, I think it is really important when you're evaluating an opportunity, any kind of opportunity, is you also, one of the factors you always have to include in that evaluation is like, the season of life that you are in. And I think oftentimes we're so focused on like all the things, you know, we talk about it here on this podcast and we will continue to talk about it. We, so we talk about the networking and gaining experience and upskilling and all those things that you, you should be doing, but there's also that other X factor of like, what's going on in your life, like outside of your time and energy spent on work, what does your life actually look like that your life and your career are going to go through seasons. And there might be seasons in your career where you're just like, I'm taking anything. I'm being scrappy. I'm getting all the experience. I'm going to be on every committee and volunteer for everything with the national organizations. And I'm going to do all that. I went through a season like that, where I was like, all in on all the things, all the places. And, and then there are going to be seasons of your career and your life where it's like, you're not as interested in that. You're, you're, you're wanting to focus your energy and time on other things that might not involve work. Um, you might have things that are not intentional that pull you away from focusing on those things. That's great. 
I think if those things are happening and you are seeing these S curves happen in your career and your life, that that means you're living like a full life. That's great. (laughs) I think if everybody's in a season of hustle and grind and like, I'm just growing my career all the time, there might be a big piece that you might be missing to feel well-rounded and more whole versus like, also the people who are just like, nah, I don't really care about my career. And I only live to for joy. Although now that I say that out loud, I'm like, those people sound great, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, uh, I will never be that person, but yes, they sound great, but there will be times where your work and your career is less of a focus. And I think it sounds like you went through that kind of evaluation where it's like, you know, this, you know, with entrepreneurial friends, we kind of always joke about how it's like, we would be horrible employees in one sense, but also <laughs> amazing employees on another sense. Cause if we're just like, oh, you yeah. want me to do one thing? You exactly. only want me to do a thing. <laughs> and so like with you, you know, you went from running this larger operation and managing human capital and all these other things to being like, I know my lane, I'm sticking in my lane. I can do it really well. And then I don't have the, you know, extra stress and extra responsibility and ownership over all these other mechanisms to make our, our office run. There's somebody above you that does that, which is so can be very liberating. I mean, I know we talked about this, but you're like, you know, I spent, and I forget how many years you were at UC London and then AIC slash CIE, but like in that, what, four years? It's like you were hustling. Yeah. Five, six years. Yeah. It was six six, years. It was five and a half years. Yeah. Because And it's crazy now when I think about it, because I'll never go back, you know, it's really hard to work with students on their careers and employers when you're also doing housing and health and safety, and you're talking to a student that feels maybe suicidal or is having a really hard time and mental health issues. Um, And then you have, you're on call. Emails from parents. Emails from parents and you're on call and the drunk student, you're on call with the hospital and the program administrator at 4am because the student got drunk and threatened to sue the emergency technician that came over to help them. I mean, these are things that legitimately take away also from focusing on maybe certain aspects that you want to focus on. There's nothing wrong with that. If you want a career that has all those aspects, then please be a site director on, on, in delivery of study abroad. It's really amazing. But there's also a time for me when I just wanted to focus on the things that I really love Mm -hmm. and really, really learn and pour more of my resources into that Mm -hmm. area. Yeah. I love that. So we're coming to the close here and thank you so much for sharing your story and being willing to, I know I I was like, um, how about we interview you? And you're like, okay. (laughs) So I'm really happy you agreed to do this, but Sam's going to be on the podcast moving forward. We're going to be batch recording a bunch of great episodes coming in the future. So stay tuned for that. But Sam, if people want to connect with you professionally, where would you like them to go? I would love for you to connect with me on LinkedIn. So Samantha Cooper, I love LinkedIn. Please send me a connection request. I love a note. So just send a note. That's the best place to to connect with me. Yeah. And she's the queen on LinkedIn. I always tell people to connect with me on LinkedIn. And then I log into LinkedIn once a month. (laughs) I'm the worst. I'm worse. (laughs) But Sam will be there to say hello and greet you. So thank you again. So we have some announcements for those of you who stuck with me. A big announcement is Jason Kinnear, the Jason Kinnear, who is director of international programs at the University 
how do you say it? UNC Chapel Hill, but like, how do you say it? North, University, University of North, North Carolina, Carolina at yeah. Chapel Hill. I'm like, UNC Chapel Hill. That doesn't everybody know? Uh, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And I've known him for a long time. He's had this awesome career in international ed and, and study abroad specifically, but he's going to be teaching our education abroad advising lab in early May. So that is actually available to, for enrollment right now. We have early enrollment pricing and that'll be happening early May. So if you want to learn more about that, go to insidestudyabroad.com slash lab. So we will also link to it in the description and show notes below. Beyond that, we also have the Global Pro Institute opening for enrollment again for our spring cohort. So Sam and I will be working with a new batch of aspiring global educators in the next enrollment. And that is happening at the end of April. So if you want to make sure you're on the email list for that in our early enrollment, early bird pricing period as well, go to insidestudyabroad.com slash ISA. No, don't go there. Sorry. <laughs> go to insidestudyabroad.com slash GPI. Too many acronyms. So insidestudyabroad.com slash GPI to get on the wait list um, if you're interested in enrolling in the Global Pro Institute and internship program. It's been a lot of fun. We have a lot of people who want interns and we don't have enough interns. So if you want to be involved and get an internship placement, uh, definitely sign up for that. So thanks again, Sam and everybody for listening in. Remember that every day you postpone a dream, you weaken it a little. So get out there and make some